Shakespeare. So the, we're going to concentrate on the first session, those plays and works of Shakespeare that uh, he wrote during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And then the second part, those plays he wrote during the reign of King James I. Um, I'm going to begin with just a relatively brief um, exposition of the evidence for biographical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism. You know, we've talked about the modus operandi, reading objectively, reading through the authorial voice of the author. So we're not just projecting our own prejudice onto the text to try to see the to see the, the work as far as possible through the eyes of the author. So um, it's important to know who Shakespeare is and who Shakespeare isn't, um, because that's going to obviously inform our understanding of what Shakespeare is doing with the text. So uh, Shakespeare was born in 1564 in the early years of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Um, he was born into a very uh, staunch, recusant family. So to very quickly to get our terms correct here, unlike in Europe where there were if you like, the Reformation uh, in, it was largely rooted in theological differences between Protestants and Catholics, you know, Luther and um, Calvin, etc. In England, the Reformation is a completely different thing, and you should never conflate the English Reformation with the Protestant Reformation, because the English Reformation was basically a secular uh, uh, revolution where the king basically decides that he is going to be head of the church, and he establishes... Uh, a state religion, and that state religion becomes compulsory. In other words, if you refuse to uh, attend uh, that state religion, you are fined. And those who refused were called recusants. Um, so there were, there were there, and for the most part, England was a very Catholic country. All of the statistics show that at the time of the, uh, Henry VIII's uh, rebellion against the church. Uh, so there was a resentment amongst most English people about the establishment of uh, the Church of England. But most people conformed because they didn't want to pay fines. Um, so th but of those that conformed, there were many that were called uh, or became known as church papists. And these were living a double life. So outwardly they would conform to the state religion to avoid paying the fines, but secretly they would also attend Mass and the other sacraments if there was a priest available. And of course, priests were now uh, operating illegally, so they were outlaws, and that, thus the title of these two sessions, The Outlawed Muse, um, because the point about Shakespeare is, in many ways can be seen as being similar to someone like Solzhenitsyn in the Soviet Union in the, in, in the last century, as someone who's, uh, whose muse is, is, is that of an outlaw. Uh, that therefore he can't uh, say all that he wants to say in the way that he wants to say it, because to do so uh, would be breaking the law and with the consequences that, that would follow from that. So you have the church papists, but the recusants were, the, if you like, the devout or hard-lined or staunch, resilient, resistance Catholics uh, who refused to attend Anglican services uh, and were fined. Shakespeare's family uh, were recusants. So his mother's family, the Ardens, were one of the most uh, no, uh, well-known recusant families in England. Uh, uh, two of Shakespeare's cousins were uh, killed, executed for their part in so-called papist plots. Uh, and his father, Shakespeare's father, was fined for his recusancy in 1592. 
by which time Shakespeare is living in London and writing plays. Later in 1606, which as we will see in the second of this morning's sessions, is a very significant year uh, in, 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 uh, in, in Shakespeare's life as regards uh, the plays that are, that are produced that year. Um, in 1606, his daughter, Shakespeare's daughter Susanna, is also fined for her recusancy. Now, there's no record of Shakespeare ever being fined for his recusancy. Um, but let's look at one fact which is of interest. If you read most secular biographies of Shakespeare, um, the, the, they will make a big point of the fact that there's no evidence of Shakespeare ever attending his local Anglican church. They've gone through all the records of the time. Some of Shakespeare's friends and people he worked with were, were uh, attended there. Shakespeare never attended there. Um, and of course, the conclusion they draw is he was like us. He was a 20, 20th century, a 21st century agnostic who sneered at, at, at religion. But of course the logic, would, the logical conclusion would be that Shakespeare's not attending the Anglican church for the same reason that his parents are not attending the Anglican church and the same reason his daughter is not attending the Anglican church uh, because he refuses, because he's a recusant. So this is actually evidence that Shakespeare uh, is, has the same approach towards religion as a Catholic in, uh, towards the Anglican Church. He also lived for a while as a tenant of, um, of uh, a, Hug a Huguenot. And again, this is seen as evidence that he must have been a Protestant because he wouldn't be a tenant of a Huguenot unless he was, a, unless he was a, uh, himself uh, a Protestant. But in actual fact, Huguenots were exempt from having to attend Anglican services. So if you were living in the home of a Huguenot, you could not, you could, uh, not attend Anglican services and not be fined for not doing so. So there was be a very expedient reason for Shakespeare being a tenant at such a home. Now, so what do we know about Shakespeare? I mean, first of all, I, I argue in my book, by the way, th I should say here that I've written three books on Shakespeare. Uh, the first is called The Quest for Shakespeare. Uh, the Bard of Avon and the Church of Rome, and that's the biographical historical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism, and I would refer you to that book because obviously I'm only going to be doing the bare bones here. Um, but I argue in that book, there's, there's, there's a chapter called Playing Safe with the Queen, where I say that Shakespeare's not a secret Catholic because his Catholicism was known, but he was considered by the Queen to be a safe Catholic. So one thing we need, we need to understand is that, that Catholics weren't a small minority in England who were hiding in corners and, 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 and trying to hide the fact that they were Catholic, living in, in, in fear in that sense. The Catholics were a, a considerable portion of the population. There were a, a large number of Catholics. And that's so much so that, for instance, the church had to lay down walls for what uh, Catholics working in the Queen's Court were able to do. So Catholics, for instance, like ladies-in-waiting on the Queen, for instance, and she, the Queen had Catholics working in the royal household. They were allowed, the, church, the Catholic churches, they were allowed to go to Anglican services in the Queen's train, you know, because to refuse to do so would be an act of treason, right? They're allowed to go to, 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 to Anglican services in the Queen's train, 
but they were not permitted to take Anglican communion. So, not, so the, these laws were, were laid down because there were many Catholics uh, in all um, layers of society. And if the Queen believed, yeah, if the Queen believed that you uh, were not a threat to her, herself, uh, you could actually be a favourite. So the Earl of Southampton, for instance, Shakespeare's patron, was a known recusant who was nonetheless a favourite of the Queen and often at court, even though he's also had the Jesuit martyr St. Robert Southall as his uh, confessor simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that we know exactly what, what the percentage was, but when when King James was, uh, became king uh, in 1603, and for a very brief period of time, the anti-Catholic uh, persecution ended, uh, people were shocked at how many Catholics just emerged from, from the woodwork and how many masses were being set all over the country. Um, I wouldn't like to put a figure on it. Um, it was basically, I think you can say, at the time of, of Henry VIII's uh, so-called Reformation, the vast majority of the English people were contented Catholics who resented the change. Protestantism had not really taken root in England. Uh, it would take several decades for that to begin to happen. Um, and I would say that probably in terms of numbers, there were more Catholics certainly than any uh, of, of, of the, the Protestant groups uh, outside the established church. So there, there were many. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to put a figure on it. It's, it's not a small minority, it's a significant portion of the population. So again, the Earl of Southampton is one example of someone who we know was a recusant Catholic, who was also a favourite of the Queen. Another is the, 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 the composer William Byrd. Now, William Byrd uh, uh, and his wife were fined for being recusants, um, uh, and they continued to, to remain recusants. And at the same time, the Queen made... William Byrd, the composer of the Chapel Royal, in other words, her own official composer, even though she knew he was a recusant Catholic. And in the end, uh, Elizabeth's Attorney General, so the chief lawyer uh, of, of the country, actually told the authorities to leave William Byrd and his wife alone. In other words, to turn a blind eye to the fact he's not attending Anglican, Anglican services. So these safe Catholics that were favourites of the Queen. So there's this nuanced uh, understanding we, ha we have to realise if we want to understand how Shakespeare's operating. Because I say that Shakespeare was like William Byrd. I think that, that, every, that people knew he was a Catholic. I don't think that was uh, uh, particularly a secret. But I don't think he was considered to be a threat to the Queen's life or uh, uh, plotting for her overthrow or anything like that. So, she, so he was tolerated. Um, so what uh, uh, documentary evidence do we have about Shakespeare's Catholicism apart from these circumstantial aspects? Well, we know he had to leave Stratford-upon-Avon as a young man in a hurry. And we know he had to leave in a hurry because he had um, uh, incurred the uh, wrath of the local lord of the manor, uh, Thomas Lucy. And there's sort of various legends, you know, he was caught poaching on the king's land, um, or he wrote a sonnet uh, that, that, that lampooned and attacked Lucy, and Lucy was not happy with this, and so he had to run away. It'd be great if that, if that sonnet did exist, if he still had it, but we don't know. 
But we do know that Sir Thomas Lucy was, was despised by the local Catholics because he was very, uh, um, uh, how should I put this, very enthusiastic in carrying out the persecution of local Catholics. So raids on Catholic homes, uh, etc. Um, so he was, he was an enemy of the local Catholics and, and, he, and Shakespeare made an enemy of him and had to leave. So there's evidence there. We know, by the way, uh, and this is a very interesting story, uh, about 150 years after Shakespeare's death, the home in which he was living in, in, in uh, as a child growing up um, uh, in Stratford, uh, was renovated, and under the, in the rafters of the roof, they found this document, which was the spiritual last will and testament of John Shakespeare. John Shakespeare was Shakespeare's father, and no one really knew what this spiritual last and testament was. I mean, they knew what it was, but where, where, where it came from. So it's not, a, it's not a, a will and testament in terms of who I'm leaving money to. It's a, basically it's a statement of faith. Now, I, John Shakespeare, wanted to be known that I am a believing Catholic, and I wanted to be known that uh, should no priest be available when I die, that, that I desired such a priest, and that I'm dying as a, 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 as a, as a believing member of the Catholic faith. And it's, it's much more than that, but that's essentially it. So it's a sort of like uh, a last rites of desire. It's sort of last rites of desire. Um, so you know, we, we know about baptism of desire. I know that, it, that if someone dies and they haven't been baptized, but um, you know, they would have desired baptism, this baptism of desire. Well, this is a last rites of desire. There's not going to be, if there's not a priest, I want it known that I desired a priest. So if I don't get the last rites, I'm putting it on record. It's not because I didn't want them. <laughs> um, and, and of course, because there, there's every, every possibility for Catholics in England that this is a situation they're going to face. But then what is this document? Where did it come from? And then, and then there was a Jesuit scholar about 100 years ago dug up copy, exactly the same wording as this handwritten copy um, in Switzerland and in Mexico and I think in Spain. And this document was actually composed by St. Charles Borromeo, the uh, Archbishop of Milan. And it was composed by St. Charles Borromeo, presumably, because uh, in, the, in the 1570s, uh, there was a plague in Milan. And so many people were dying that there weren't enough priests to minister to the dying. So... St. Charles Borromeo, being the saintly shepherd of his flock that he was, composed this, had it printed and handed out around Milan for people to sign as a means of saying that if there is no priest, I want it known that I desired a priest. So how does that document, written for the people of Milan, end up, or a copy of it, end up in the rafters of Shakespeare's family home? Very interesting. First of all, there's a letter from uh, a Jesuit priest in England to uh, his superior in Rome saying, could you please send some more of the testaments because many people desire them. And in many Shakespeare biographies, they say, well, this, this was probably the Douay Reims New Testament. Um, and that's a problem because these priests, these Jesuits, of course, are outlaws. They travel around the country, you know, they're, they're, they're gardeners uh, or school teachers, so they're living an undercover life. 
They're like spies, if you like. Um, outlaws. So smuggling around large copies of the, the New Testament would not be very practical, would certainly be extremely dangerous. Whereas the, the spiritual last one in the Testament would be much thinner. So you'd have thought anyway that it's more likely to be the spiritual last will in Testament than the Douay, New, Douay Reims New Testament. But then if you actually look at the date of the letter from the Jesuit priest to his superior in Rome, it's about two months before the first edition of the Douay Reims uh, New Testament was published. And he's asking for more copies of the Testament. Therefore, it cannot possibly be the Douay Reims New Testament. So it's clear to me that this, this, this is the spiritual last will and testament that, that's there and they've been sent over so they can be handed around to England's Catholics. Now how did they get there? Well, this is the most likely reason. In 1580, um, a group of priests, including um, St. Edmund Campion, left the English College in Rome to return to England. Now think about the courage of these priests, by the way. They knew there was a, a, a spy network in England, that, which meant it was likely, very likely, that sooner or later, and probably sooner, they're going to be caught and captured. And when they're captured, they're going to be tortured for information. And after being tortured, they will suffer the very slow and ignominious martyrdom of hanging, drawing, and quartering. So these men knew that and returned home. One of my complaints, by the way, <laughs> against Holy Mother Church, don't stone me, um, is that, you know, that these, there's 40 martyrs of England and Wales grouped together uh, in one feast day, and they've now apparently been grouped together with the 85 beatified martyrs. So 125 saints sharing just one feast day, one day a year. Uh, and if you were, basically, if you're an Italian and you're a virgin who founded an obscure religious order that lasted for 50 years, you have your own feast day on the calendar. But if you're one of these English martyrs, you're grouped with 125 others. Um, but anyway, that's another matter. So Edmund Campion deserves his own feast days, what I'm saying. Um, so on their way back to England, you know, there's various ways you go back to England, but if you're going back to England overland from Rome, Milan is on your way. And St. Edmund Campion and these priests stayed at the invitation of St. Charles Borromeo um, in Milan. And St. Charles Borromeo asked uh, the priest, to, you know, one or other of the priests, to, to actually preach to him. And there's sort of wonderful correspondence about this. So it seems very likely to me that these testaments were given to uh, St. Edmund Campion or one of his companions to take to England with them. And that's how they first came over. And then they became popular, which is why you're then, then requesting more copies. St. Edmund Campion, when he comes in, passes on his way up north uh, within a few miles of Stratford-upon-Avon, stays overnight there, and we know he met with local recusants. I like to think that Shakespeare and his father would have been amongst them, because Shakespeare at this point would have been 16 years old. But we don't know that. But we do know that, that, he's, that uh, St. Edmund Campion was staying in, in the region of Lancashire, and there's uh, there's... I don't put a lot of uh, strength upon this in my book, but, but there was a, an actor called William Shakeshaft uh, staying in Houghton Hall, right near where Ed, Edmund Campion was staying at exactly the same time 
Um, and we know that Sir Edmund Campion visited this house where a young actor called William Shakespeare was staying. We know from one of William Shakespeare's contemporaries that as a young man, he spent some time as a schoolmaster uh, in the countryside in England. So there's many people that, 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 that take this William Shakespeare, um, and we know, by the way, that he and his father sometimes use variations of, the, of, the, of their own name. So I think this was William Shakespeare. We don't know, but certainly some uh, biographers have sort of had this vision of St. Edmund Campion, who'd written plays that were performed in Prague, teaching this teenage William Shakespeare the art of, of playwriting. Uh, but then we get in, so when Shakespeare comes to London and starts writing his plays, what documentary evidence do we have about, about Shakespeare? Well, there's St. Robert Southall, or Southwell, there's an ongoing debate about how you pronounce his surname, but um, uh, he was ministering to the Catholics in London at the same time that Shakespeare was there. Shakespeare's patron was the Earl of Southampton, who, as I've said, uh, uh, was a recusant Catholic and a well-known recusant Catholic. So again, you want to compare evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism, why would a recusant Catholic take Shakespeare under his wing? It would suggest it's because they're kindred spirits. If Shakespeare is a Catholic and the Earl of Southampton is obviously in Shakespeare know each other, well, and, Sh and the Earl of Southampton knows St. Robert Southall very well. St. Robert Southall is his confessor. St. Robert Southall stayed in, in the Earl of Southampton's homes. There's nowhere at all that Shakespeare and St. Robert Southall would not have known each other. It's entirely possible that St. Robert Southall was Shakespeare's own confessor. We can't prove any of that. But what we can prove textually is there are numerous copious intertextual references in Shakespeare's plays to the poetry of St. Robert Southall. Um, and also in, in, in his poems. Um, that I will talk about when we get to the plays. Also, Shakespeare ends up in court in London. Two men take William Shakespeare and some other co-defendants of Shakespeare to court, uh, accusing Shakespeare of having threatened their lives. Um, and Shakespeare and his companions were bound over to keep the peace. So in other words, found guilty. Well, who were these people that were Shakespeare's enemies? Well, they were two men that were known priest hunters that we have written letters from them gloating about raiding Catholic homes, bringing books, uh, Catholic books out and crucifixes and pictures and having them burned publicly in the streets outside the homes, gloating about this. Now, of course, those people would not be very popular amongst Catholics. Amongst Shakespeare's co-defendants were, were a, a couple of two, uh, two known recusant Catholics. So Shakespeare's friends are recusant Catholics. His enemies are the enemies of the Catholics. Um, again, uh, the, the other large part of the evidence, as, apart from the biographical stuff, and I'm only giving you a sprinkling of that, is the textual evidence from the, uh, from the plays and the poems. And I, I, I see that the, the evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism being like a Gothic arch, that, the, that you have the biographical evidence here and the textual evidence here, and each supports the other and makes a very, very strong case. We'll come to some of the textual evidence soon. Um, 
But for me, the strongest evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism is his purchase of the Blackfriars Gatehouse in 1613. Just as he's leaving London to go back to Stratford to retire. Um, so why would he buy a house just when he's leaving London? He's obviously not buying it to live in. And again, secular biographers, this was obviously just a smart financial investment. But that's odd because Shakespeare by this stage had lived in London for perhaps as much as 25 years um, and had never purchased a house for himself in that time. You know, he'd always lived in rented accommodation. And it wasn't because um, he was poor. He'd already, I think in 1600, purchased the second largest house in Stratford-upon-Avon uh, for his own family. So it's not as if he didn't have money. He didn't choose to, to, to buy, purchase a home. So it'd be rather odd that he just decides to invest in property as he's leaving London. But what is this property, the Blackfriars Gatehouse? Well, uh, obviously, the Blackfriars were the Dominicans. Uh, there's an area of London, even today, Blackfriars Station, Blackfriars Bridge, which was the area where Blackfriars, the, the Dominican religious house, was in the centre of London. That was destroyed by Henry VIII. The gatehouse became a private residence. The gatehouse, the, the Blackfriars, became a private residence. We know from the property deeds that that home stayed in Catholic hands all through the, uh, de the decades from the 1530s until Shakespeare buys it 80 years later in 1613. So if Shakespeare wasn't a Catholic, he'd be the first non-Catholic to own the house. But what about this house? What is this house? Well, it was a known center for Catholic activity in London. There were raids upon the house, there were reports to the government of the house having secret passageways within it leading down to the river, River Thames, enabling people to escape. There's a report of a priest being pursued, knocking frantically on the door to be uh, allowed in. Um, this is the house that Shakespeare purchases. It's basically, you know, underground central for, uh, um, for the, the Catholic Church in London. And further to that, he stipulates that he, once he's bought the house, the person who's the tenant of the house should remain as the tenant of the house. In other words, whatever the house has been being used for before, it's going to continue to be used for. That tenant is someone called John Robinson and is the only one of Shakespeare's London circle of friends who's present with Shakespeare, at Shakespeare's fine, uh, final hours and death and signs Shakespeare's will. In the same year that Shakespeare buys that house, John Robinson's brother enters the English College in Rome to study for the priesthood. So I think the, evidence, the biographical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism is overwhelming. So now I want to come to the textual evidence. And I'm not just going to talk about the, just the textual evidence. I want to talk about some of the plays and um, it's just as plays. So the textual evidence will be something that's, that's part of that. It's not, I'm not going to approach it from that perspective. Let me say something else. Um, that my, my approach to proving Shakespeare's Catholicism from the text of the work is somewhat different from other people doing that. I, perhaps I shouldn't mention names because I'm being somewhat going to be a little bit critical here. That, 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 that some people, they pluck individual lines from Shakespeare's work to prove that the, he was a Catholic. I could very, very easily, should I want, 
play devil's advocate and pluck other lines from Shakespeare's plays to prove that he wasn't. Right? Um, so, you know, plucking isolated words out doesn't prove the case. Of course, what's very important is who's, who's saying the words? You know, who's the voice? Is it, is, it, is it the voice of a virtuous character and a hero that we meant to sympathize with? Or is it the voice of, uh, of, of a villain or a, a wicked person? I mentioned yesterday, I think, about Sir Kenneth Clarke's uh, TV series, Civilization, and how he concluded uh, at the end of his, his, his episode on Shakespeare that Shakespeare was a, a modern skeptical nihilist. Uh, and he used as evidence of that the quote, uh, I know that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And that's how he concluded the show. And I thought, hang on a second. Shakespeare didn't say that. Macbeth said that. Macbeth says that right at the end of the play, after he's been a serial mass murderer, right, and he's now lost everything, his wife's committed suicide, and he's a completely desperate figure. Yeah, he, and he, that's how he ends up. Shakespeare's lesson is, you know, if you, if you are the sort of person Macbeth is, you'll end up believing rubbish like that. So who says it? So my approach is to go through the works scene by scene, looking at the whole play as the integrated, integral whole, and prove the case that way. That, of course, much takes a lot of work. So I've written two books so far. I wrote a book called Shakespeare on Love. Uh, well, so it's a whole book just on Romeo and Juliet. Just going through the play. So basically, I've written as many words on Romeo and Juliet as there are in Romeo and Juliet, probably. Um, in order to go through every single scene and, 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 and show what's happening in the play. Uh, and in my other book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, um, uh, I, I, again, a full-length book, and uh, I just cover three plays, uh, The Merchant of Venice, Hamlet, and uh, King Lear. So ideally, in an ideal world, I'd like to be, you know, uh, what I need is someone like the Earl of Southampton to just give me uh, a stipend, stipend to allow me just to work on Shakespeare for the rest of my life. And, I, and I'd like to write another 20 books just going through the rest of the works meticulously like that, but it's probably not going to happen. Um, so, that, so, that, so that's the approach. You have to go through in, in a detailed way. All right, so now let's go on to the textual evidence now. And I'm got, my approach is basically going to be, as I've just explained, to try to look at, at individual plays in, in, at some depth with the very limited time we have. But just prior to, to doing that, some of the Shakespeare's earlier plays, so uh, I want to point out perhaps the character of Falstaff, a very popular character in Shakespeare, uh, is a rogue. People will say he's a lovable rogue. He's only a funny rogue. He gets laughs. Um, but so, so in, he in Henry the Fourth, Part One, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and Henry the Fifth is where he appears, and then he's so popular that Queen Elizabeth actually requests—I suppose requests—right um, that Shakespeare brings him back, right? And so Shakespeare writes what is my favorite of all his comedies, um, *The Merry Wives of Windsor*, uh, where Falstaff's brought back as, the, as this as this rogue. Now. The thing about Falstaff, yeah, he's funny, and we might be pleased he's in the play because he gets the laughs. But I would, I would suggest he's funny in the same way like 
same way as uh, Basil Fawlty is funny in the Fawlty Towers, right? He's hilarious, he gets lost, but is he a good person, right? Uh, he's obviously got all sorts of issues, right? Um, so, so, so basically, that the, the Henry ad, we see this, the main thing that's happening is that young Prince Hal grows in maturity, he has a conversion and turns his back uh, on Falstaff and turns his back on, on those you know, evil, self-serving, drunken, lecherous ways and embraces the responsibility necessary to become king. So that, 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 those three plays were really about the, convert, the, the coming to maturity of Henry V. Falstaff is a character who's completely static. He makes no progress. He's like Gollum. And it comes to a miserable end. And then he's, then he's resurrected in Twelfth Night. Uh, sorry, not in Twelfth Night. In Merry Wives of Windsor. And he's lampooned, basically, because he's a complete slave to his appetites. And because people know that, they set up all of these comical scenes where he makes a complete fool of himself. You know, so basically what Shakespeare's showing is there, look, if you're going to be someone who is just going to uh, pursue your animal appetites and to refuse the responsibilities of life, you are going to become as ridiculous as Falstaff. And in Twelfth Night, um, just very briefly, that we see the, uh, in several of Shakespeare's plays, we see the Puritan being depicted. Now, you have to remember that... Um, that Shakespeare, or no playwrights in Shakespeare's time, was allowed to write about contemporary uh, religion or politics on the stage. It was illegal to write about contemporary issues. You, you were censored. Shakespeare gets round that, but first of all, by setting his, his plays in the past, and of course, in Shakespeare's time, you have to go back uh, less than 100 years to actually uh, uh, to get back to a Catholic England. You, set, you, set, you can set your plays in the past, and of course you can have priests, because it would not be historically accurate if you wouldn't. Or he sets them in places like Italy, where of course they're going to be friars and priests and sisters. So he sort of circumvents it that way. But also he circumvents it by having characters, and they're never called Puritans, but they sound like Puritans. They don't like music, they don't like laughter, they dress in somber clothes. They have no sense of humour. And of course, one thing we have to realise is that a great deal of what Shakespeare's audience would have known, because they're living in contemporary culture, where Shakespeare's alluding to Puritans or what have you, they would know it. They would find, and then we've now got you know, uh, the accretion of three centuries of buried time uh, to sort of dust off to try to, to uncover this. And we're only getting, I would suggest, we only even if you're looking for it, getting just a fraction of what his, his own audience would have known. But the, title, the character of Malvolio in Twelfth Night is clearly a Puritan. His name means ill will, or you know, bad will. Um, and again, he's lampooned. And you know, in, again, in the modern world, we can almost feel sorry for him. But imagine that, taking a contemporary context, he's a Nazi. Malvolio is a Nazi, which is probably, you know, what Shakespeare... Remember, the Puritans, by the way, wanted to close the theatres down. The, the Puritans actually called Shakespeare and, uh, and, and, and the, playing, the playing world papists. I mean, somebody, uh, what's this, the, uh, the priest and his poet, referring to Sir Robert Southall and Shakespeare, as a, 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 a 
Puritan writer in the 1590s, well, it might be in the 1600s. But anyway, during Shakespeare's lifetime, talked about the priest and his poet. So they wanted to close the theatres down. So the, so the, 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 the Catholics and, and at least anti-Puritans uh, in, in, in Elizabethan theatre and the audience that went there would all have been united in this uh, opposition to the Puritans. Now, if we see it that sense, and Malvolio is seen as a Nazi, there's not going to be any sympathy for the fact that he's made to look an idiot. Right? But if we forget all that, then we think, oh, poor man. I mean, they've, they've got a bit, he, was, he is a bit of an idiot, and he's got some crazy ideas, but it's, you know, perhaps it's a little bit unfair that he had to put up with all of this, but you've got to see things as Shakespeare and his audience would have seen him. Malvolio is a Puritan. All right, let's move on to Romeo and Juliet. And um, this is a play which is probably doing a huge amount of harm to our culture. And it's not Shakespeare's fault. Because the play is misread and mistaught. I remember my experience of having it taught to me as a high school uh, student back in London. And basically the way that the play is normally taught is that Romeo and Juliet's love is pure, almost holy, sacrosanct. And it's all the fault of the parents, of the Capulets and Montagues and their hatred of each other. And it's them the truth to that, that they're certainly partly culpable because of their uh, uh, hatred. But the Romeo and Juliet's love is pure, you can hardly call it chaste, um, pure, holy, um, and, and beautiful. You know, if you say to a, someone, well, he's a Romeo, you're actually paying him a compliment, which is, which is the complete opposite of what Shakespeare's doing. So what we, what we do with the play now, we're seeing it through post-romantic eyes, we're not seeing it through the eyes of, of Elizabethan England. So let's look at some of the facts, first of all. Shakespeare, you, more often than not, most of the time, takes his plots from elsewhere. So he takes existing plays and uh, poems and, and does things with them. That's in some, somewhat illuminating, because he often takes anti-Catholic works and baptizes them. Right? He, makes basically Catholic versions. And as he's such a great playwright, everyone's forgotten the Protestant uh, anti-Catholic one and we just have his left. But Romeo and Juliet, he got from an earlier poem published about 20 years earlier uh, by an English poet. So it's interesting to see what does Shakespeare do with it? In other words, what is Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet? How is it different from the source? Well, one of the most obvious is that um, Juliet in the poem is 16. Shakespeare makes her 13. Shakespeare chooses to make her three years younger. In the poem, Romeo, I don't know if we've given his age, I think we might be, he might be 18. Anyway, he's the same sort of age. There's not much of a gap between Romeo and Juliet in term of, terms of age. Shakespeare doesn't give an age to Romeo, but he's old enough and strong enough to defeat the fearsome Tybalt in a sword fight. He's mature, if that's the right word. He's cynical and seasoned and experienced enough to banter wittily with the worldly 
cynic Mercutio about love, by which they really mean lust. So he's been around. So the suggestion at least is he's at least as old as he is in the other poem, 18 and perhaps older. So that, that, that Romeo is considerably older than Juliet. And this is Shakespeare choosing it to do this. And it said, well, I remember when I was taught it, you know, it was common in those days for 13-year-olds to get married. And I, because as most students, you just think that your teacher is God, and if they say it, it must be true, right? So I never questioned it. Oh, they used to get married. Those, it wasn't that unusual for a 13-year-old girl to get married. Well, what's always useful then is to have some good, solid research. And thanks be to God, someone did some good, solid research and spent lots of time looking at marriage certificates in the 1590s, at the time that Shakespeare's writing the play. What are the facts? The average age for men to get married in Elizabethan England was the mid to late 20s. The average age for women to get married was the early to mid 20s. Marriages below the age of 18 were rare, below the age of 16, almost unheard of. It's also generally accepted that physically speaking, uh, that men and women uh, reached puberty at uh, a later age then than now. So if anything, a 13-year-old would be younger than we see a 13-year-old as being. So Juliet's a child. And then when you realize that Juliet's a child, the whole tenor of the play changes tone altogether. And and it's no coincidence, by the way, that at the time that Shakespeare's writing this play, he has a daughter who's Juliet's age. This is being written by a dad of a teenage girl. And all of a sudden, right, we're not going to see Romeo and Juliet the way the romantics see it. And if you actually read the play and look carefully at the imagery that Shakespeare uses for the way that Romeo and Juliet speak about each other, you will see it's idolatry, they make gods of each other, it's blasphemous, the imagery is all of darkness, preferring the night to the day, uh, the, the, uh, the, the light, the sun is an enemy. So let's back step a little bit. At the beginning of the play, Romeo is completely besotted with a, a character who we never see but we like, or at least I like. She's one of my favorite characters, so I don't have a word to say. Um, he's besotted with her, he's obsessed with her, he locks himself in the room all night, and he's angry with her because she says to him that she has a religious vocation. And he says, that's dumb and it's stupid and in fact the language he uses is how dare she you know basically she she's making me suffer by choosing that life it's all about him now I we don't know whether she actually does have a religious vocation she might have just said that to get rid of him right either way I like her <laughs> uh, so you know so without saying without having a word to say in the play she's quite a strong character she shakes him off very well anyway and of course, this is obsessive love, and he says no one could be as beautiful as she. And then he sees this girl 
across the room, doesn't know her name, doesn't know who she is, doesn't know anything about her. All he sees is that she's beautiful physically. And he falls passionately in love with her, even though he knows nothing about her personality. Uh, and immediately all previous loves are vanquished, exorcised, this new obsession has taken place. And the chorus tells us, and Shakespeare doesn't use a chorus very often, but the thing about a chorus as regards of the voice is it's a neutral voice. Right? It doesn't have an angle. So it usually speaks with a sort of a, an objective authority. And the chorus tells us that the old love has been replaced. I can't remember the exact phrase now. Um, but just the old love has been replaced by a new. And it, the, the point is, he doesn't say that all these false loves have, have, have vanquished and now he's met his true love. The actual phrase is, and I wish I had it before me, the actual phrase is that he, 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 he I think it's not like he loved and loves alike. In other words, this new love is like the old love. There's no difference between the two. And why would it be, by the way? He doesn't even know this girl. At this stage, he has not even spoken to her. And then you have the exchange. And of course, the exchange is beautiful. It's a sonnet. No, the, the exchange between Romeo and Juliet when they first meet, beautiful language, and their suggestions, because this was the, there was the, the sonnet was very much in fashion. You have to remember, by the way, that the, the novel hadn't even arrived yet. The best-selling writers were poets. The best-sellers were poets. And all the rage in the 1590s was the sonnet. It was the fashion. And there's a suggestion, there's an element of the lampooning this this fashion, the fact that these, because you know, a lot of it's about loving and in this sort of Ro Romeo type way, which is really, you know, it's, a, it's, it's dressing adultery up in beautiful flowers. Uh, but what's the imagery of that first exchange? What is exchanged as regards the image between their lips? It's sin that Romeo, in kissing Juliet, gives, passes sin to her. That's the actual imagery being used. And when she realizes this, she sort of, she's shocked. And she said, sin? And Romeo uses that as the excuse to grab a second kiss. Well, if it's sin, give me my sin again. In other words, no, well, it's not really sinful, I'm sorry, it's the wrong image. Of course it's sinful, let's have more of it, give it back to me, I'll have it again, right? So the actual imagery in, the, in that first kiss is what's, changed, what's taking place between, uh, between them here, it, the exchange is an exchange of sin. All the language about each other thereafter becomes idolatrous. Uh, the, scene, the balcony scene, Juliet is up above, she's still largely innocent, she hasn't definitively fallen. She's been tempted. She has those feelings. She can't really make sense of them. She's wavering as to what she should do. Romeo trespasses into a garden. The garden happens to be an apple orchard. He looks up at her and through that exchange. By the way, that also begins with uh, uh, his mocking. The whole scene begins as he, as he enters the garden, 
mocking purity, mocking chastity, mocking the goddess Diana and her, and her Vestal followers. Now, basically, and, then, and then says to Juliet, you know, um, cast off the envious moon. Right, basically, cast off your chastity. And during that, that, that balcony scene is when we actually see Juliet fall. She falls, if you like, from the balcony into Romeo's arms. Of course, not literally. But, uh, so uh, so you, actually, you follow that scene. At the beginning, she's basically still a good girl, but confused. By the end of it, she's hook, line, and sinker, going to do whatever the older man wants her to do. Um, I would say, but I would just very briefly before moving on, because you know there's other stuff I'd like to be able to get to. That it is true that the Capulets and the Montagues are to blame. They are, in a sense, negligent or even worse, abusive parents, in the sense that they allow their hatred for the other family to poison their relationships with their own children. Um, it is true that, um, that Shakespeare is basically saying that where are the parents in all this? You have this 13-year-old girl. Where's the protection? And there's that really, when we feel most sympathetic to Juliet is when Capulet decides she, he's going to uh, uh, allow her to marry uh, Paris after having said earlier, by the way, that uh, she's only 13, you know, obviously she's too young, but he changes his mind. And Juliet clearly is going to tell them that she, about her relationship with Romeo. But she can't get a word in because of her husband's Sorry, her father just tells her to shut up every time she tries to say something effectively. And then when he storms out and, and, and she turns distraught and distressed to her mother, and her mother says, don't talk to me. And she walks out, and the girl's left by herself. And then the imagery at the end of, of the death scene, because they're obviously leaving loads out here, goes without saying, but read the book, right? Plenty, plenty more stuff in the book. But what's the imagery of the death scene, right? Where, um, Juliet wakes up from uh, this uh, fake death, should we say, this sort of coma, to find that Romeo has just very, very recently, just a few moments earlier, committed suicide through taking poison. So he takes poison through his lips. In Shakespeare, by the way, often we see it in, in Hamlet as well, sin is... Sin, is, is uh, Sin is, is connected in, in imagery and symbolism to poison. So the sin that passed between their lips in the first kiss, where he's poisoned himself with his lips. And what does Juliet do? She hopes there's still enough poison left on his lips that she might die as well. And there's that kiss. But there's not enough poison on the lips. So what does she do? She takes Romeo's dagger, and again, the phallic symbolism here is deliberate. She stabs herself with Romeo's dagger. 
she kills herself with his weapon. So Shakespeare is basically showing us, and we see it in many of his other works, the, 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 the crucial difference between rational love, which is to sacrifice yourself for the other, you know, selflessly, to give yourself to the other, uh, which is always inseparable from um, responsibility, versus following your passions, love not being a rational choice, but being an emotional feeling. And you, if you follow your feelings instead of following uh, your reason and the recklessness of that. All right, nothing else. I, I, does anybody have any questions of Romeo and Juliet? Yeah. Very good. I was not going to mention Friar Lawrence just because I, you know, I, I, we might not get to anything other than Romeo and Juliet this morning, but that's fine. Um, Friar Lawrence is a complicated character because most of the, most of the uh, basically almost all of the words of Thomistic wisdom in the play come from him, right? From the first time you see him, uh, but basically he's talking about herbs and flowers and you have to use them correctly because if you use them incorrectly, recklessly, they can be deadly. So there's all this Thomistic wisdom. And yet in a moment of weakness uh, and error and sin, which he confesses later in the play, he thinks that by bringing these two together, he can bring peace to the two families. It's a wrong-headed desire for a good thing, right? It, it, it was a mistake, and he knows it was a mistake. Um, so that's what, he, that's what he's doing. He also, you know, there's things that they're going to, I mean, they're going to they're going to uh, consummate their relationship whether they're married or not. And he's still wrong, by the way, because uh, canon law at the time, uh, it was uh, a, a, a priest was not allowed to marry minors without the consent of their parents. So he's breaking canon law. I assume Shakespeare knew that. But certainly, um, uh, He's not doing a good thing, but, he, but he's doing it for the right reason, right? Um, to, to bring about peace between the families. He also, the worst, the worst moment it, it, where we feel least sympathy for him is his cowardice. Friar Lawrence is a weak man. So he, he daren't hang around uh, in the crypt with Juliet and runs off before you know, the, the guards and what have you arrive because he just gets scared. And therefore, he's not there to prevent her from killing herself. It's not, it's not a good picture, right? Um, but he confesses all this. He tells them what happens. So I'm, 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 I'm wrong. I've made a mistake. Please punish me. Even, if, even unto death, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy. To whatever you want. So he makes a, a good and true con confession. To which the, uh, the prince replies we still have known thee as a holy man. In other words, you're a good and holy man, you've made a mistake. And we're not going to punish you beyond that. So I would suggest that that's probably the, the, the prince's judgment of him, who does basically make the final judgments about all the plays and you know, what's going to happen to everybody, so he brings the thing to resolution. I would suggest that that should also be our view towards Friar Lawrence. We still have known thee as a holy man. Yes. Hey, Joe. Um, Joseph, have you seen the Franco Zeffirelli film version? 
I had that very, very un unfortunate experience once, yes. Yeah. I was going to ask, what were, your, <laughs> what were your thoughts on the Zeffirelli film? It was, it was a perfect example of, of that misreading of the play that I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, that, and that's that, and I, we, we still await the, the good Hollywood movie that presents it as Shakespeare meant it, but one of these days. Okay, anything else on Romeo Juliet? Yeah. To the, to what Shakespeare's take on it was like. Did the setting of the Capulet families and Italy change? Well, no, no. So, so the superficial, well, superficial, the accidental, perhaps to use a more philosophical term, the accidental aspects are lar largely unchanged. So the, the, the significant changes were him, his make choosing to make Juliet significantly younger. But the actual setting in Italy is the same. The love affair is basically the same. Um, the uh, priest is much more negatively portrayed in the original poem than it is than, than Friar Lawrence is in the play. Um, so that's another significant. Shakespeare often does that. He extricates the anti-Catholic stuff from anti-Catholic sources and, and, and baptizes them with a Catholic infusion. Yeah. Juliet is 13. Marina in uh, Pericles is obviously quite quite young. Uh, there's a number of uh, those daughters that are uh, to be seen in Shakespeare's work. So what is it in the father-daughter relationship in, in the Shakespeare corpus? How would you? Talk well, that that's that's a great that's a great and very good and very big question. I mean, I would say that you know Shakespeare had three children, as you know. His only son died, Hamnet. So he he's the father of two daughters. Um, so he certainly has personal experience of a father-daughter relationship. Um, uh, so I, I think that alone would be a reason. His depiction of, of, of women generally, I, I think, is brilliant. So because he can show purity and chastity as strong. I mean, we we, we talked about um, Penelope when we're doing the Odyssey, you know, circumspect Penelope, you know, who who is in many ways a passive character, but that. But she's extremely strong, and, and certainly, arguably, the strongest character in the whole work in terms of of, of of staying morally secure and not falling into sin. If you take that sort of as as a measure of strength, if you take virtue, if you like, as the measure of strength, she's the strongest character in the Odyssey. And Shakespeare is very good at that, with you know, with with characters like Cordelia. Uh, he's also very good at purity. Characters like Miranda in in, in the Tempest, right? Um, but he can give us a Lady Macbeth. He can give us a Regan and a Goneril. I mean, he's, he's not naive about the wickedness that we're, uh, of which women are capable. So I think he's very, uh, not surprisingly, he's Shakespeare, very well-rounded, right, in his depiction of women as, as in his depiction of, of men. But uh, beyond that, I mean, I think that what, you want, what, you, what you're asking is another book, and I haven't written that book, so I can't give an adequate answer. So, <laughs> great question, though. All right, so what else do we have time for? We've got uh, 20 minutes still. Um, so let's uh, move on to the Merchant of Venice. Now let me say again, I'm going be, to begin following the same sort of pattern by raising a plaintive voice against what I call Shakespeare abuse. Should be punishable by death. Um, because again, this play is also often um, misunderstood in terms of how, how it's taught, how it's produced. 
Let me give you one example. Back in England, you know, before I moved to the States, in, in, in Norwich, in England, I saw a, a production of uh, The Merchant of Venice where all the Christian characters were skinheads. Um, and, you know, none of the words were changed, but, yeah, it, it, the, the way they delivered the words you know, was always with invective. And, of course, they'd be spitting at Shylock in between and kicking him. You know, the whole meaning of the play has been completely perversed and reversed. So it's another example of, of, of the way that Shakespeare is being abused. Part of the reason I'm so passionate about writing about Shakespeare is to correct this stuff, right? To be a, a, a voice that's, that's a corrective voice. So I want to begin with what I call the Shylockian heresy. Because, you know, the play is now usually performed as, as if it should be called, you know, the tragedy of Shylock. Or not even the tragedy of Shylock, right? The, the persecution of Shylock. Now, The Merchant of Venice, yes, there's an ambivalence in the title, so it could, be, it could refer indirectly to Shylock, but the actual, the, 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 the Merchant of Venice in the title of the play is Antonio, right? So it's not, even, it's not about Shylock. Shylock's an important character, but he's not a central character. In the structure of the play, there's basically three nodes, three centers, if you like, of the play, the three different tests. Shylock's only really involved in one of those three. And the real test is, for instance, you know, because you, you can imagine now that uh, the play could just be, could just change the title of it from The Merchant of Venice to Shylock in the way that it's often performed with him really as being the central figure and the one we're all supposed to feel sorry for. Um, and I'm going to suggest that that is absolutely a desecration of the structure and form of the play. Let me, by way of analogy, um, Charles Dickens's story, A Christmas Carol. It's called A Christmas Carol, that's fine. But if you were to retitle that Scrooge, nobody would be offended because the whole story is about Scrooge and Scrooge's conversion. It is about Scrooge, you could call it Scrooge. But staying with Dickens, if we were to change the title of Oliver Twist to Fagin, it would be absurd, right? Because Fagin's a significant character but he's certainly not the central character, and he's certainly not the, what, what the plays, are, what the, the novel's about. I would suggest that, that Shylock is a character more akin to Fagin and Oliver Twist than to Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, and should be seen as such. In other words, he needs to be put in his place. Um, now, the other thing about Shylock, is what about the anti-Semitism of The Merchant of Venice? So let me say a few things about that. There were no Jews in England at the time that The Merchant of Venice was written, because Edward I had expelled them uh, 200 years earlier. 200 or 300? Who's the historian here? All right. It's, it, was, it was 18... It, it, it was... No, 1215 is Magna Carta. It was, either, it was either 1281 or 1381, I think is the actual date of the expulsion of the Jews. 1281. No, so 300... So there hadn't been any Jews in England for 300 years. If you actually look at the, 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 the words uh, where Shylock is being criticized or condemned by the other characters, it is because of his usury. 
it's that which is the thing that he is, is, is basically being accused of doing. That's, he says himself, that's why they hate me. They hate me because I practice usury. And Antonio won't practice usury. Now what you have to understand is at the time the Catholic Church condemned usury as a, as a mortal sin, as a serious sin. Catholics were not allowed to practice usury. But usury had returned to England in a big way by the time that Shakespeare is writing his play in the 1590s because John Calvin had sanctioned the practice of usury. And the usurers in England were the Puritans. And again, you know, Shakespeare can't talk about Puritans. It's against the law. But you can have someone with puritanical traits, like Shylock, who has no time for music, or you know, all those things that would be seen as signs to his audience that he's, you know, he's, right, he's a Jew, right? But we really know he's not really a Jew. He's a, he's a Puritan. So again, the, 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 the invective and the spleen that's been vented against Shylock is the, the spleen that's been vented against the Puritans for their usury. We also have to understand that, that um, even were we to take the anti-Semitism as being anti-Semitism, which would be to ignore the, the, the literary device it's being used to, to convey, which is the Puritans, even were to ignore that, I speak, by the way, as someone who was an anti-Semite. I think I know how anti-Semites feel. I was one for many years. It's made perfectly clear when, when Shylock says about his daughter Jessica, she's my flesh and blood. You know, it, basically they say that she, she has no more in common with you than red wine from, wine, from Rhenish. In other words, red wine to white wine, difference in your bloods. And she converts. In other words, it's about religion and theology, not race. And no one objects to Jessica marrying a Christian once she, once she converts, right? So, I was an anti-Semite, you, you would not sanction any, any Gentile marrying a Jew. Those sort of mixed marriages, that's you're being a traitor to your race. So even on the grounds uh, of anti-Semitism, as, as anti-Semites anti understand it, this, fail, this play fails. Because anti-Semite, you think, what, Jessica, they're going to let Jessica marry a, a Christian? All right, let's look at this, uh, the structure of the play. Because the important thing about the structure of the play, it works on two levels. Um, one, if you like, is, is virtuous and moral and metaphysical, and the other is somewhat sordid and very secular and very physical. So the, the, the two settings of the play are Belmont, where the beautiful Portia lives, which means beautiful mountain, and Venice where Shylock and Antonio and, and what have you live. And so what we see, if you know, uh, again, back to Oscar Wilde's words, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. The view from Belmont, the view from the top of the beautiful mountain is very different than the view in the gutter. So Belmont is where Portia lives, this place of purity and wisdom and strength and wit and wisdom. And then Venice is this place where all the worldly people squabble about 
petty things like money. And Antonio and Bassanio are caught between the two worlds. And the challenge is obviously to rise above the level of Venice and attain to the beauty of Belmont. So that's the form, if you like, it, the play takes place on these two levels, a physical and a metaphysical, if you like. But also as regards the forward movement of the play, there are these the three tests. So the, the, uh, the, uh, the um, test of the caskets, the test of the trial, the test of Shylock, you could call that, and the test of the ring. And it's about the passing or the failing of those tests. Um, although Father Simon Henry uh, was kind enough to bring me his Kindle, I think oh, clearly I, I'm not going to have time to engage the exact text, so I'm going to gonna have to forgive me if I um, misquote things. Um, so let's go to, let's go to the, uh, the, uh, the test of the caskets that comes first. You have a test of the gold or the silver or the lead casket. Now a lead casket if you put the word lead-lined casket, you think of coffin. Right? The choice is between the worldliness of gold, the worldliness of, of silver, or the death of lead. And of course, all the, all the, um, the vain characters, they come in and they choose, one chooses gold, the other chooses silver, and they get their reward, which is not Portia, who's the only reward worth having. And then Bassanio comes in and he chooses lead. And in his choice of lead, by the way, one of the other big mistakes that Shakespeare abuse in modern plays is Portia cheats. In other words, Portia gives clues. Portia basically tells Bassanio the answer to the test. Well, once that happens, the whole moral uh, foundation of the play is pulled out from underneath it, right? Portia's just as, as uh, sordid and cynical as everybody else in the play and the producer who produced the play and the director who directed the play. And there's no, by the way, that I, I, I go some length in, in, in through Shakespeare's eyes to, sh to show by looking at the words closely, there's no suggestion whatsoever that there could be any cheating going on. She walks away, there's music playing, he's talking to himself. And when he's talking to himself, and it's all about, it's a memento mori, which is a literary device we see running through all Christian literature, the reminder of death, four last things. The memento mori always points to the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. How does Shakespeare evoke that spirit in The Merchant of Venice? By alluding very, very obviously and his audience would certainly know this, to the poetry of St. Robert Southall. So there's actually poetry by St. Robert Southall that clearly be Shakespeare's plucking elusive lines from it, making the connection. At the time that Shakespeare's writing this play, St. Robert Southall's in prison awaiting death. So what St. Robert, St. Robert Southall has chosen the lead casket already.
So that, that, if you like, that, that, that is the testing of Bassanio, and he passed. The second one is the testing of Shylock, and he fails. And again, you know, we had that wonderful speech, the quality of mercy speech by Portia in the midst of this trial scene. Um, and some of the most beautiful lines that Shakespeare ever wrote. And again, it's been suggested by several critics, and I, I tend to agree with them, that these lines are uh, being addressed to Queen Elizabeth I. You read that speech, and you bear in mind that St. Robert Southall, who Shakespeare almost definitely knew, is in prison awaiting martyrdom. And you read the Quality of Mercy speech in the light of that fact, and a whole new level of meaning will come to you. But even standing on its own, of course, it's a beautiful speech about mercy, the quality of mercy, as opposed to vengeance. That without mercy, all of us are going to go to hell, right? Um, and e even then, you know, that's often, in the modern renderings of the play, Portia's seen as being hypocritical or lying. Because once you, once you, once you make her, you know, you, the word whore is not a very nice word, but I, I have to use it the first time because there's a nice euphemistic English word, meretricious, which actually means whore-like. So from now on, I'm going to say meretricious, and I was going to be offended, okay? Um, but, you know, but once you make Portia meretricious, then you know, anything she says, she's a bit just being a hypocrite or a liar, right? If she says anything which is virtuous and altruistic. Right, and then there's a, there's a wonderful, in, in, the innate, in the Ignatius Critical Edition of um, The Merchant of Venice, which I recommend uh, heartily to you. The Ignatius Critical Editions, by the way, are critical editions of the great works of literature, and we, we, we produced that series. I'm the series editor of it. We produced that series as an answer to like the, um, uh, what's the very well-known critical editions? The, uh, Norton. The Norton Critical Editions, because the Norton Critical Editions, the great works of literature now, have these really poisonous, postmodern, uh, anti-Christian, iconoclastic essays in the back, poisoning the minds of students. So we brought out these Ignatius Critical Editions with, with basically critical essays by contemporary Christian scholars um, on, on these works. So the 27 works we've published so far, including seven Shakespeare plays. And of those 27 works, my favorite of all of them, just because of the quality of the essays, is The Merchant of Venice. So I do thoroughly recommend that. Because there are essays in it by economists talking about usury and the history of usury. Um, there's uh, essays in there. And one of my favorite, and that's why I'm coming at the testing of Shylock here, is by uh, a law professor at the UCLA Law School. And he shows, you know, if looking at through the eyes of a troll lawyer, that what Portia's trying to do is to get Shylock off the hook. Because Shylock's already condemned himself because demanding the death of someone for the fact they owe you money is not legal that basically desiring the murder of someone is, is not legal as a means of uh, recompense for money owed. And Portia's trying to get him off. She could, I mean, the way you look at it, one, just trying to persuade him that, come on, before it's too late, you know, just, 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 just take the money. 
All right, you're being off the money now. Just take the money before it's too late. And then over and over and over again, he says, no, I want my pound of flesh. And then and she said, well, if you must have it that way, so be it. And that's what she says, well, you can, have, you can have your pound of flesh, but you can't kill the man to do it. You can't draw blood. You can't murder him to get your pound of flesh. Right? So Porsche actually has a, a brilliant, according to this law professor, a brilliant, she's an attorney, a defense attorney for, Paul, for, for, for Shylock. But he won't listen in his hatred. And in the final, the final test, the other thing I have to remember about this, this is a comedy. And again, that's something else that's forgotten, right? It's all about the tragedy of Shylock. It's a comedy. It has a happy ending with a with, with double marriage. And the final test is the test of the rings. The test of the rings, because there's two rings. And there's a depiction of Portia at prayer towards the end. But what is marriage? Marriage is laying down your life for the beloved, in sickness and health, for better or worse, richer or poorer, till death do you part. And the ring is a symbol of that. And Bassanio, for all these promises, I'll be loyal to you for the rest of my life, gives his ring away. So Portia has every right to say, what the hell with you, right? Made a big mistake with you. No, what did she show? The quality of mercy. No, so they even make a bit of a joke of it, but, but, but right, it's made perfectly clear, that's not going to happen again, is it? You're going to keep this ring now, aren't you? Yes, dear. So we see again the Merchant of Venice, um, uh, uh, how Shakespeare does give us one of the most, the strongest characters in all of his plays, in a female, in the character of Portia. And just to finish, one of my favorite speeches of Shakespeare is the Mark the Music uh, speech uh, that um, uh, Lorenzo gives to Jessica at the end of the play. No, they're going to get married too, so there's three marriages. Um, and when I sign copies of Through Shakespeare's Eyes, I just, I just in, put, write Mark the Music, exclamation mark. That's the only comment. Because in this speech, which is one of the most beautiful speeches in Shakespeare, and it's necessary because Jessica says, she remembers she's the daughter of a Puritan. Jessica says, I, I don't understand music. Music doesn't do anything for me. And that's when he basically that we get this beautiful speech about the music of the spheres, the harmony of the cosmos. He uses the language of the mass. He talks about the, the, the stars as being patterns on which the Blessed Sacrament is put, right? So you, so you have this beautiful speech at the end in defense, indirectly, of the Catholic Church, but directly of music. And what are the Puritans trying to do at the time? Within the Anglican Church, they're trying to extricate the beautiful sacred music from the Anglican liturgy because music is the, is the work of the devil. All right, I think that takes us basically to the end of this session. Any questions on the Merchant of Venice? All right, we'll come back, we'll be doing Hamlet. Thank you.